Chapter 6 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 6 The End of the Tether The sun had set, and when, after drilling a deep hole with his stick, he moved from that spot, the night had massed its army of shadows under the trees. They filled the eastern ends of the avenues as if only waiting the signal for a general advance upon the open spaces of the world. They were gathering low between the deep stone-faced banks of the canal. The Malay prow, half concealed under the arch of the bridge, had not altered its position a quarter of an inch. For a long time Captain Wally stared down over the parapet, till at last the floating immobility of that beshrouded thing seemed to grow upon him into something inexplicable and alarming. The twilight abandoned the zenith, its reflected gleams left the world below, and the water of the canal seemed to turn into pitch. Captain Wally crossed it. The turning to the right, which was his way to his hotel, was only a very few steps farther. He stopped again, all the houses of the seafront were shut up, the quayside was deserted but for one or two figures of natives walking in the distance, and began to reckon the amount of his bill. So many days in the hotel at so many dollars a day. To count the days he used his fingers. Plunging one hand into his pocket he jingled a few silver coins. All right for three days more, and then, unless something turned up, he must break into the five hundred, Ivy's money invested in her father. It seemed to him that the first meal coming out of that reserve would choke him, for certain. Reason was of no use, it was a matter of feeling. His feelings had never played him false. He did not turn to the right. He walked on as if there still had been a ship in the roadstead to which he could get himself pulled off in the evening. Far away beyond the houses, on the slope of an indigo promontory closing the view of the quays, the slim column of a factory chimney smoked quietly, straight up into the clear air. A Chinaman, curled down in the stern of one of the half-dozen sampans floating off the end of the jetty, caught sight of a beckoning hand. He jumped up, rolled his pigtail round his head swiftly, tucked in two rapid movements his wide dark trousers high up his yellow thighs, and by a single noiseless fin-like stir of the oars steered the sampan alongside the steps with the ease and precision of a swimming fish. Sofala, articulated Captain Wally from above, and the Chinaman, a new emigrant probably, stared upwards with a tense attention as if waiting to see the queer word fall visibly from the white man's lips. Sofala, Captain Wally repeated, and suddenly his heart failed him. He paused. The shores, the islets, the high ground, the low points were dark, the horizon had grown sombre, and across the eastern sweep of the shore the white obelisk marking the landing place of the telegraph cable stood like a pale ghost on the beach before the dark spread of uneven roofs intermingled with palms of the native town. Captain Wally began again. So far la, savvy, so far la, John? This time the Chinaman made out that bizarre sound and grunted his assent uncouthly, low down on his bare throat. With the first yellow twinkle of a star that appeared like the head of a pin stabbed deep into the smooth, pale, shimmering fabric of the sky, the edge of a keen chill seemed to cleave through the warm air of the earth. 
at the moment of stepping into the sampan to go and try for the command of the Safala, Captain Wally shivered a little. When on his return he landed on the quay again, Venus, like a choice jewel set low on the hem of the sky, cast a faint gold trail behind him upon the roadstead, as level as a floor made of one dark and polished stone. The lofty vaults of the avenues were black, all black overhead, and the porcelain globes on the lampposts resembled egg-shaped pearls, gigantic and luminous, displayed in a row whose farther end seemed to sink in the distance down to the level of his knees. He put his hands behind his back. He would now consider calmly the discretion of it before saying the final word tomorrow. His feet scrunched the gravel loudly. The discretion of it. It would have been easier to appraise had there been a workable alternative. The honesty of it was indubitable. He meant well by the fellow, and periodically his shadow leapt up in tents by his side on the trunks of the trees to lengthen itself, oblique and dim, far over the grass, repeating his stride. The discretion of it. Was there a choice? He seemed already to have lost something of himself, to have given up to a hungry spectre something of his truth and dignity in order to live. But his life was necessary. Let poverty do its worst in exacting its toll of humiliation. It was certain that Ned Elliot had rendered him, without knowing it, a service for which it would have been impossible to ask. He hoped Ned would not think there had been something underhand in his action. He supposed that now, when he heard of it, he would understand. Or perhaps he would only think Wally an eccentric old fool. What would have been the good of telling him, any more than of blurting the whole tale to that man Massey, Five hundred pounds ready to invest. Let him make the best of that. Let him wonder. You want a captain? I want a ship. That's enough. Brrr, what a disagreeable impression that empty, dark, echoing steamer had made upon him. A laid-up steamer was a dead thing and no mistake. A sailing ship somehow seems always ready to spring into life with the breath of the incorruptible heaven, but a steamer, thought Captain Wally, with her fires out, with the warm whiffs from below meeting you on her decks, without the hiss of steam, the clangs of iron in her breast, lies there as cold and still and pulseless as a corpse. In the solitude of the avenue, all black above and lighted below, Captain Wally, considering the discretion of his course, met, as it were incidentally, the thought of death. He pushed it aside with dislike and contempt. He almost laughed at it, and in the unquenchable vitality of his age only thought with a kind of exultation how little he needed to keep body and soul together. Not a bad investment for the poor woman, this solid carcass of her father. And for the rest, in case of anything, the agreement should be clear. The whole five hundred to be paid back to her integrally within three months. Integrally. Every penny. He was not to lose any of her money, whatever else had to go. A little dignity, some of his self-respect. He had never before allowed anybody to remain under any sort of false impression as to himself. Well, let that go, for her sake. After all, he had never said anything misleading and Captain Wally felt himself corrupt to the marrow of his bones. He laughed a little with the intimate scorn of his worldly prudence. Clearly with a fellow of that sort, and in the peculiar relation they were to stand to each other, it would not have done to blurt out everything. He did not like the fellow. He 
did not like his spells of fawning loquacity and bursts of resentfulness. In the end, a poor devil. He would not have liked to stand in his shoes. Men were not evil, after all. He did not like his sleek hair, his queer way of standing at right angles with his nose in the air and glancing along his shoulder at you. No. On the whole, men were not bad, they were only silly or unhappy. Captain Wiley had finished considering the discretion of that step, and there was the whole long night before him. In the full light, his long beard would glisten like a silver breastplate covering his heart. In the spaces between the lamps, his burly figure, passed less distinct, loomed very big, wandering and mysterious. No, there was not much real harm in men, and all the time a shadow marched with him, slanting on his left hand, which in the east is a presage of evil. "'Can you make out the clump of palms yet, Sarang?' asked Captain Wally from his chair on the bridge of the Sofala, approaching the bar of Batu Beru. "'Not one, by and by see.' The old Malay in a blue dungaree suit, planted on his bony dark feet under the bridge awning, put his hands behind his back and stared ahead out of the innumerable wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. Captain Wally sat still without lifting his head to look for himself. Three years, thirty-six times. He had made these palms thirty-six times from the southward. They would come into view at the proper time. Thank God the old ship made her courses and distances trip after trip as correct as clockwork. At last he murmured again, In sight yet? The sun makes very great glare, Tuan. Watch well, Serang. Ya, Tuan. A white man had ascended the ladder from the deck noiselessly and had listened quietly to this short colloquy. Then he stepped out on the bridge and began to walk from end to end, holding up the long cherrywood stem of a pipe. His black hair lay plastered in long, lanky wisps across the bald summit of his head. He had a furrowed brow, a yellow complexion and a thick, shapeless nose. A scanty growth of whisker did not conceal the contour of his jaw. His aspect was of brooding care, and sucking at the curved black mouthpiece, he presented such a heavy, overhanging profile that even the serang could not help reflecting sometimes upon the extreme unloveliness of some white men. Captain Wally seemed to brace himself up in his chair, but gave no recognition whatever to his presence. The other puffed jets of smoke... Then, suddenly, I could never understand that new mania of yours of having this Malay here for your shadow, partner. Captain Wally got up from the chair in all his imposing stature and walked across to the binnacle, holding such an unswerving course that the other had to back away hurriedly and remained as if intimidated, with the pipe trembling in his hand. Walk over me now, he muttered in a sort of astounded and discomfited whisper. Then slowly and distinctly he said, I am not dirt, and then added defiantly, as you seem to think. The serang jerked out, See the palms now, Tuan? Captain Wally strode forward to the rail, but his eyes, instead of going straight to the point, with the assured keen glance of a sailor, wandered irresolutely in space, as though he, the discoverer of new routes, had lost his way upon this narrow sea. Another white man, the mate, came up on the bridge. 
He was tall, young, lean, with a moustache like a trooper and something malicious in the eye. He took up a position beside the engineer. Captain Wally, with his back to them, inquired, "'What's on the log?' Eighty-five answered the mate quickly and nudged the engineer with his elbow. Captain Wally's muscular hands squeezed the iron rail with an extraordinary force. His eyes glared with an enormous effort. He knitted his eyebrows. The perspiration fell from under his hat. And in a faint voice he murmured, Steady her, Sarang, when she's on the proper bearing. The silent Malay stepped back, waited a little, and lifted his arm warningly to the helmsman. The wheel revolved rapidly to meet the swing of the ship. Again the mate nudged the engineer, but Massey turned upon him. Mr. Stern, he said violently, let me tell you, as a ship owner, that you are no better than a confounded fool. End of chapter 6